All right, so I just want to keep us in a, a bit of a spirit of prayer, not that you have to bow your heads um, necessarily, but I, I want us to take some time before we jump into the Word of God this morning to, uh, to pray. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share a little bit of information, and I'm going to prompt you uh, through some prayer requests. Um, all of that said, uh, I do want to give a heads up. If you're worshiping with us online, at the end of the message today, we're going to celebrate communion of the Lord's Supper. And uh, obviously, you know, here in the room, we're providing uh, what you need for that. But if you're worshiping with us online, you might uh, not have been ready. You want to uh, grab some bread or some crackers, some juice, whatever you have in the house that might in your mind, be able to represent for you the body of Christ that is broken for you and the blood of Christ that was uh, sacrificed, spilled out for you. Uh, just gather those things uh, maybe now uh, while we talk. Um, I, let me take this off. I, um, I made for us a prayer guide, if you will, um, just to try to guide the conversation and give you some things to think about in the days ahead. And so you don't have to get it now, but on your way out today on the back table is a prayer guide. It's got some information from some of our ministry partners. You know, you may know this, you may not know this. Uh, Harvest partners with the Northwest Baptist Convention here in this part of the country, and the Southern Baptist Convention uh, really across the country and around the world. That's not to say that we're the only Christians. We would never imply that. Uh, but it is to say that we have significant ministry partners both on the ground in U Ukraine and uh, here in the States serving Ukrainian and Russian populations as well. So uh, the executive director for the Northwest Baptist Convention is a friend of mine. His name's Randy Adams. Randy shared uh, just this week that there are 20 churches in our partnership here in the Pacific Northwest that worship in Ukrainian or Russian. You may not have known that. Um, uh, many of them are Russian-speaking churches, but have many people who are from the Ukraine, some majority from the Ukraine, and these Russian and Ukrainian brothers and sisters worship together often in these churches here in the States. I think that's significant to sort of represent the shared heritage, and I think if we don't think politically about this, or we don't think in terms of war about this, but we think about the peoples of Ukraine and the peoples of Russia, we can easily be thinking about how challenging and difficult this is for families who have some on both sides, who, who um, you know, may not support at all what's going on. Um, we certainly know, you know, not 100% of Americans always support 100% of what America does. I'm not trying to be political again. I just say, let's recognize that there are brothers and sisters around the world who are really split apart, who are really um, struggling through this time. I have another friend um, who leads Oklahoma Baptist, and he posted uh, at the last day or so that, that he's in contact with Ukrainian pastors uh, in Ukraine who are moving their families to safety and then using their churches uh, to support what's happening. Uh, some of them are volunteering within um, the Ukrainian military as chaplains. Others are opening their churches as refugee uh, slash bomb shelters. And literally, I was reading of churches that are, you know, just welcoming as many people as they can into their basements as bomb shelters. And one specific church had 60-some people just living out of the church if you will. Um, likewise, we have uh, partner churches in Poland and other countries along the border 
of the Ukraine that are doing the same, that are reaching out and doing everything they can uh, to support refugees who are fleeing the war. So what I want to do is I want to take some time. I want to just prompt you to pray this morning. And so I'm just going to give you a prompt, give you a few seconds to pray for that. I'll give you another one, and we'll keep praying from there. Is that that good? All right, uh, let me start out. Jesus, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you understand that um, there are those who are in the direct path of conflict and war right now. And we pray for their safety, and we pray for their needs to be met, and we pray for security for their families. Lord, we gather together to pray for an end to this fighting and loss of life. We pray for families to be united. We pray for churches to rise up and serve. And we pray that the gospel will be made clear. All right, so I want you to take time right now, and I want you to just pray for uh, the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia. Maybe pray for strength, courage, perseverance. And pray for all those that are trying to find safety, refugees who are fleeting in in many directions. Pray for safety as uh, there's much chaos. And pray for government officials, uh, both in the Ukraine and and Russia, and pray that uh, just that hearts would be changed, that there would be much wisdom. You take a moment and pray for the soldiers who are serving, who are, whose lives are on the line, and uh, many of whom really don't have a choice in what they're doing. And so in that sense, I pray for soldiers on both sides of this conflict. Take a moment and pray for, uh, for churches and for uh, relief workers, for uh, aid organizations. Um, they're doing all they can to serve those who are displaced. Pray for the believers of those churches uh, that they might, in the midst of uh, great chaos, not only have your peace, but share your peace. I want you to pray one more thing. I want you to thank God that he is sovereign, that he is not caught off guard by events like this that happen in the world, 
or even in your life. Just thank you. Thank him that uh, he is present in the midst of all the human suffering. Lord, I just want to gather together to pray again that you would use this moment to be near to the broken. And that people would see you in their chaos. And Lord, I know that there are you know, many in, uh, in the country of Ukraine who believe in you and, and probably some who don't. And Lord, whether they do or don't, I pray that in these moments that they would see how real you are. That they would be able to provide, to find comfort and strength and perseverance and protection. Lord, we certainly can understand that there are those who feel that their homes have been invaded and that they would rise up to protect their freedoms. Lord, we pray protection over them. We pray for an end to this aggression. Jesus, we thank you that the gospel is good news. We just ask that... You would speak to our hearts today from that good news in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying. So again, this prayer guide um, just has a couple of pictures, some prayer prompts, that kind of thing. It's exactly what I read and spoke from this morning. They're back on the back table. Feel free as you leave today to grab one of those, stick it in your Bible, and remind you of how to pray uh, for all that's going on this week. I found myself bombarded with images in the news and wondering, you know, we want to pray. Okay, we pray for the war. We pray for, but what do we pray? And uh, this helped me put a flesh and, and flesh on the bones of sort of how to pray in this time. So I want to ask you a question. We were in Daniel chapter 7 last week. You can open your Bibles again if you're studying the Bible with us this morning. Hopefully you are. Hopefully that's your intent in being here. Hopefully you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we keep them on the back uh, table and around the room. We give our Bibles away for free. Everybody should have a Bible. We want you to have one of ours if you don't have one. I want to ask you this question, uh, or maybe fill in the blank. Um, in your note page, you know, whether you're taking full notes or not, just write in a couple of words. Say, I picture God the way I do because. Fill in the blank. I picture God the way I do because. Maybe because of your parents and how you were raised. Maybe you picture God the way you do because of how some other Christian has treated you. Of course, that treatment might have been good and graceful and merciful and forgiving. That treatment might have been harsh and judgmental and both have an impact on how others picture God. You might picture God the way you do because you've met Jesus. I picture God in a lot of ways, right? God is loving. God is strong. Sometimes God is wrathful. That's not something we're very comfortable with. Faithful, caring, patient, beautiful, all-wise, all-living, all-knowing. 
So again, as you picture and think about how you picture God, to you, God might seem like an authoritarian figure, or God might seem benevolent and good, or God might seem judgmental and critical, or for you, God might seem distant or even, let's be honest, when we gather together, I always realize there are some who are here who might see God as non-existent. And even if that's you, we're glad you're here. This is a safe place to explore what you believe about God. What I want to really challenge us to do today is make two firm commitments right out of the gate. Number one, that I will be completely honest with myself about why I see God the way I do. And number two, I will let God out of the box I try to put him in. Now, let me step out there and say, it doesn't matter whether you let God out of the box or not, he's out of it. But I think letting God mentally out of the box gives him permission to be the God that he is and do all that God wants to do in your life. Maybe a better way of saying it is you're taking your heart out of a box that shields or boxes some things away from God. And when we get a really good picture of God, what happens is our faith is expanded and our fears begin to shrink. Our obstacles, while still there, don't seem quite as large as they did previously. You would remember in Daniel chapter 7, we have this intense sort of vision and dream that Daniel is having. And you know that dreams can be insane. And Daniel, for once in his life, and we'll find throughout the rest of the book of Daniel, he, he spent the first six chapters telling us about how Daniel is the dream interpreter and speaks of himself in the third person. Now he's going to spend the next six chapters or so telling you how Daniel is the dream experiencer and how Daniel needs the help of God or God's messengers to explain dreams to him because he doesn't understand what he's seeing. And Daniel 7 began with a dream of four beasts, one a little worse, a little uglier, and a little more devouring than the previous. And so one beast after another ends up representing four kingdoms of the world. They're going to happen from Daniel's time, frankly, until the time of Jesus, right? We talked about, right, as the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. He sees these empires that just devour one another. And I want to pick up in, in verse 8. I may not even have verse 8 for us on screen, but verse 8, Daniel 7. He'd seen this horn, all these horns, actually. He says, while I'm thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn. There was a little one which came up, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it, and the thorn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And I just want you to begin to connect the dots that pride and humility is one of the great themes of the book of Daniel, right? And the kingdoms of the world that rebel against God are kingdoms of pride. Maybe another way of saying this, if you want to know why the world goes to war, it's actually a very human thing that war is rooted in the pride of leaders. And he says, verse 9, as I looked, you know this verse, 
as I looked, right, a beast after beast after beast, war after war, kingdom after kingdom, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool, and his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. I mean, you can tell this is a dream at this point, because I've pictured thrones plenty of times, and never once have I pictured a throne like a chariot, but this is a throne that's like a chariot. It's a, it's a throne with wheels. Don't take this to mean God's in a wheelchair. <laughs> a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him was this fire, and thousands upon thousands attended him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. It's, it's, it's the Bible's way of saying there was a, an infinite amount of people worshiping before the Ancient of Days. There's much symbolism, obviously, going on here. I began to try to think about what this means, and I came across some things just in study that uh, came from some other authors, and I thought, okay, well, this begins to help me understand the symbols in the picture. His clothing was white like snow. It speaks of his holiness and his righteousness and his purity. And the hair of his head was like the whitest wool, and that speaks of the eternality of God, right? The, the purity of God, the wisdom of God, that God has always existed and that his wisdom has always been beyond comparison, and his throne was a flaming fire, speaks of his purifying and righteous judgment. And its wheels were blazing fire, tells us that there are no spatial limitations or restrictions on his judgment, that he is present in all times, everywhere, simultaneously, essentially. That a river of fire was flowing from him, coming from his presence, reinforces these ideas that God has at in his core, a sense of righteousness. And this is not a concept that us Americans are very fond of, but righteousness naturally comes with a sense of wrath and justice. And I can make this real to you, but you wouldn't like it. If I hurt someone in your family and I hurt them deeply, I'm talking like I threatened their life, not only threaten, but take their life, you want vengeance. Now here's the difference. God has wrath and vengeance is his, but God's heart is not bent on self-oriented vengeance. His heart is bent on justice. So we want, instead of vengeance, let's use the word revenge, right? We want revenge. God, on the other hand, is going to bring justice to the equation. If God were no sense of accountability, if there were no sense of throne, if there was no sense of fire, if there was no sense of, of purity, there would be, then you'd have a God who, at his whims, decides what's right and wrong. This, on the other hand, is a God who has declared what's right and what's wrong. Thousands upon thousands serve him, and 10,000 times 10,000 worship before him. Of course, sounds like much of what we read later in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. These verses go on. Verse 11, I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn, the little horn, was speaking. 
And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. And I want you to just see that this implies that God is, as the Ancient of Days, on his throne while the suffering of these kingdoms of the world is happening. Let me say it another way. I'm going to say this a lot in the coming weeks. There's nothing new under the sun. That's the Bible's way of saying history repeats itself. That if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. And we do, humanly speaking, even kingdom speaking, over and over and over. In a sense, these pages sound like something ripped from the headlines. That's because wars and rumors of wars has always been because pride has always been at the heart of kings and kingdoms. Again, this keeps going. God is sovereign even during these seasons. And in my vision, verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. It's worth noting that it is God in the rest of scripture who rides on the clouds of heaven. This implies that this one like a son of man who has human essence to him has a God nature as well. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he, the son, was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Again, biblically, you only worship what is God. Or let me say it another way. Every human being worships something, makes a God out of something. We, we're all worshipers. I mean, even atheists are worshipers. They just, they just worship what isn't God. Some of us worship ourselves. Frankly, we all do that. Some of us worship even good things like our families. Some of us worship this earth on which we live. Some of us worship our politics or our kings. But his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And it is this kingdom that is handed from the ancient of days to the Son of Man. I said this last week. It is uh, far easier for us to sit in our chairs on this side of history, looking back through the New Testament and understand that the Son of Man is nothing other than no one other than Jesus Christ himself. Daniel would have struggled so greatly to understand this. And by the end of the chapter, you remember, he says, I was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale. And I didn't tell anybody. I kept the matter to myself. And if I had a dream like this, I probably would too if I remembered it. This one like a son of man connects these elements of God and deity to human and humanity. You know, sometimes you picture God the way you do because God seems unrelatable. Because God seems distant, other, like not us, not a part of us. 
And one of the miracles of the incarnation of, of what we celebrate at Christmas time is that God came near in the person of Jesus, that we can relate to who Jesus is because he's one of us and yet without sin. I mean, I can't relate to the without sin part, but I can certainly relate. I mean, I, I read the Gospels and I picture Jesus as a pretty human guy because he was. Right? I mean, Jesus, I mean, this is not what you want your pastor to say, but I'm sure Jesus burped all the other human things that people do. He's very human. I almost hate to admit this, but during the recent Olympic Games, some of my favorite moments were when things didn't go well for Americans I was cheering for. Let me explain what I mean. Obviously, I'm rooting for Michaela Schifrin to finish her races. I'm, I'm rooting for Sean White to, you know, go out with another gold kind of thing. Sean White comes in fourth. Michaela Schifrin did not finish several of her races. You might remember, this would, image would be burned in your head if you happen to watch this, that in her, in her race, one of them that she did not finish, she sat on the side of the hill and, and wept and, and then... And then these commentators talk about how this must have felt and how invasive people are not letting these, these humans be human while they're invasively focusing cameras in. Like, give the woman some space. She's trained. She's dreamed. This is gut-wrenching. Let me say it this way. When we discover that our superhumans are just human after all, that the greatest of all time are human beings, somehow they become relatable to us. Hey, Nathan Chen is beautiful, spinning around, you know, flips and all the things they do as figure skaters. But Nathan Chen was just as relatable in the previous Olympics when he fell and when his dreams of gold fell with him. Something about Jesus makes God far more relatable. In fact, I read this, and I, I thought it was just really good. Eugene Peterson wrote, in his earthly ministry, it was the human aspect, the Son of Man, that was prominent. And so these are Eugene Peterson's words. The Son of Man has dinner with a prostitute, stops off for lunch with a tax collector, wastes time blessing children when there were roving legions to be chased from the land. He heals unimportant losers. He ignores high-achieving Pharisees and influential Sadducees. Ultimately, he hung pierced and bleeding upon a cross, and he died and was buried in a tomb, surely the most ungodlike of acts. But his majesty, even though veiled while he was on earth, was still present. And he taught as one with unparalleled authority. He forgave people their sins. This is what God does, right? He spoke of possessing a kingdom. Both his divine and his human aspects are present because Jesus is a son of man, meaning human, and the son of man, meaning God. Hey, man, I'm glad you're here. This gives me the conclusion that I can have hope because, because Jesus is he's one of us, and yet he's God. Think about how powerful that is. 
So real quickly, I just want to remind you, last week I said the one thing, I'm going to say it again today the exact same way, that how I see God changes how I see everything else in this world. How I see what's happening on the other side of the planet is very much colored by how I see God. How I see God changes how I see everything else. It reminds me of a quote from Corey Tinboom. She once said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. And if you look within, you'll be depressed. And if you look at God, you'll be at rest. A.W. Tozer once said that a long view of God, a low view of God, is a cause of a hundred lesser evils. And a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 of our temporal problems. He also said, What comes to mind when you think about God? is the most important thing about you. And it brings me face to face with an undeniable fact. There is a God, and I'm not him. I don't get to define him. I don't. It reminds me that it's awfully dangerous to play God in this world. And as human beings, we do it all the time. It's what these beasts of Daniel 7 were doing. They were playing God as they devoured other nations. And can you not see a piece of that in what's playing out in the world today in the headlines? But the Putins of the world are not the only ones who play God. I play God when I take for granted that I will live forever when I pretend that I am the standard of goodness and somehow I am the dividing line of all that's right and wrong in the world, when I judge others by me is the standard, when I insist that the world act the way I act all the time, when I'm a controlaholic and I ask others to bow down to all of my desires, when I believe that I should receive everything I want in this world, I'm playing God. So I'm going to real quick run through some blanks here and just fill in some of our outline. I've got six big truths. Don't get freaked out. We're going to go through them very fast. This text reminds me that though the world is corrupt, God alone is holy. You can see that, right? That you have the Ancient of Days in verse 9. It says, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow. This white as snow reminds us that God alone is white as snow, is holy, this is not to say that there is something about the color white that makes those of us with white skin holy. This doesn't mean that at all. Don't make this about race, right? This is about God at his core, at his character, is different than the world that is corrupt. Though the world is corrupt, God alone is holy. Number two, though the world is fading, God alone is eternal. He is called the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days. It implies this title for God that he has always been and always will be. Number three, though the world demands to be worshipped, God alone deserves our worship. Right? 10,000 times 10,000 were bowing down before him, stood before him, attended to him. Our world demands to be worshipped but God alone really deserves it. Number four, though the world judges unfairly, right? The, the Ancient of Days sits on a throne. Though the world judges unfairly, God alone judges both fairly and mercifully. I want you to think about that. 
God alone is fair in the way he gives justice, but he is merciful when you have been wronged and hurt or your family has been wronged and hurt, you demand from our system of government justice. But when you are the one who did the wrong and did the hurt, <clears throat> you ever gone to court for a speeding ticket? <laughs> Aren't you always looking? <laughs> can we reduce this somehow? You know, is there, is there a class I can take? Is there, a, is, there a, is there mercy at the hands of the court? God alone is both just and merciful. Number five, though the world is out of control, God alone is sovereign and in charge. I mean, gosh, this just isn't in question that the world is out of control. And yet we have hope because God is not out of control. And picture this compared to the Greek and Roman gods that had human-like qualities but also were human-like sinful, battled with each other and with humans, and in the Roman and Greek sense would just wreak havoc on humanity. Then look into the eyes of the Son of Man and ask yourself, is that more accurately what God is really like? Number six, though the world wins for a short time, God alone will defeat evil in his time. Yes, the world wins sometimes. Yes. Yes, sometimes we let the world win, right? But God will defeat evil in his time. There, in this vision was this sense that the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, and his dominion, his kingdom, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That we said last week, hope is found in God's plan, in God's timing. God's plan and God's timing. In fact, if you think about what this text is telling us, it's telling us that all of history revolves around his plan and his timing and his son. Which gives me a fairly startling realization. In fact, I did it this way on purpose. You could easily take these notes and cross out the word world or the world in your outline and write in your name. In fact, I suggest you do. Though Brian is corrupt, Jesus alone is holy. Though Brian is fading, Jesus alone is eternal. Though Brian demands to be worshipped, Jesus alone deserves our worship. Though Brian judges unfairly, God alone judges fairly and mercifully. Though Brian is out of control, Jesus alone is in charge. And though Brian wins for a short time, Jesus alone will defeat evil in his time. This is personal. It's why Jesus needed to become personal. It's why Jesus would die on a cross. And in a world of political chaos, as a Christian, this gives me deep 
lasting hope and peace. So how can I have hope and peace? Well, let me say it this way. Number one, as a Christian, I can have hope and peace because I belong to the Ancient of Days. I belong to the Son of Man, and I belong to the kingdom of God. And so, yes, the world's out of control, and yes, there's war waging around the world today. And even in the midst of that, the most important thing is not that I achieve everything I want. The most important thing is not that I have my best life now. Not that I think God has nothing to do with our hopes and our dreams. But in a world where many, many, many millions of people are just trying to survive, hope is found in not belonging to this world. Not being characterized by this world. Not letting your hopes and dreams rise and fall by what happens in this world. I don't root my hopes and dreams in me sitting on a throne, but in the ancient of days and the son of man and his kingdom come. You might remember Jesus said, John 18, that my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent, prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is from another place. The primary point of prophecy and all that Daniel is telling us is to increase our confidence in Jesus so that when we suffer in this world, we're still confident that Jesus is God, that we don't abandon him when we suffer. And if you think about it, without the Ancient of Days and without the Son of Man, the sense of the world being at war and devouring each other, people being at war and devouring each other, uh, families being at war and devouring each other. Without the Son of Man, without the kingdom, without the Ancient of Days, that's really what this world is. But I have great hope and peace because I belong to the Ancient of Days. So a piece of me just wants to ask you, do you? Do you? If you're watching online, do you? If you're here in the room, do you? Do you belong to the Son of Man? You say, well, I don't know. Can I? Yeah. In fact, in just a moment, we're going to pray. And you can, you, can, you can give your life, your soul, your eternity to the Son of Man. And that just one other thing in a concluding sense. If the Son of Man rules his kingdom through sacrifice and servanthood, why is it I try to live any other way? Because there's stark contrast going on in this story. The kingdoms of the world rule through devastation, through war, through conquering. Jesus conquers through servanthood, through grace, through sacrifice, through mercy, through kindness. Why would I live any other way? The Son of Man who will rule forever is the suffering servant who came, as Mark 10 tells us, not to be served, which he could, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Are you familiar with those verses in the book of Philippians 
that tells us about Christ Jesus, Philippians 2. It says, who, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at or used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like This is what Daniel is talking about. Do you know by contrast that that kind of hard-to-interpret passage in Isaiah 14. I bet you know Philippians 2, but I, I, I bet you don't know Isaiah 14. It's going to sound vaguely familiar. Hey, theologians debate greatly who this is referring to. I tend to think it has a sort of dual meaning referring to both an earthly king and to God's enemy himself, to Satan, to the devil. Isaiah 14, verse 12 and I want you to notice the contrast here between the way of the son in Philippians was a way down. It was a way to humanity. It was a way of servanthood and sacrifice, a way of obedience to God. Isaiah 14 says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. This is not about Jesus willingly coming down to the earth. This is about the enemy of God, the devil, being thrown down to the earth pre, pre our sense of time. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens, and I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly in the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. And I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And that text goes on. It's a great contrast, actually, between the way of the devil, which we could also contrast as the way of the world, which is to exalt ourselves, and the way of Jesus, which is the way of humility, the way of servanthood, the way of sacrifice, the way of grace. Make sense? So again, I want to ask you, do you know the Son of Man? I would bet if you do, what attracted you to Jesus was not just that he was a God who could forgive your sins, but that he was like you. He was a God-man who came not to be served, but to serve. And if you're ready to stop playing God and just surrender to the one who is, maybe you'd pray with me right now. You need Jesus today online, right here in the room, either way. You need Jesus, it's simple. He came, he died for your sins on a cross. He rose again. His death is not apparent in Daniel 7, but when we get to Daniel 9, it will be. Jesus died for me. Though I demand to be worshipped, Jesus alone deserves our worship. Though I judge unfairly, Jesus judges fairly and mercifully. Though I am out of control, Jesus is sovereign. Though I win sometimes, Jesus will win for eternity. Am I ready today to stop playing God and just surrender to Jesus who is? If you are, would you pray with me right here, right now, just like this? Dear Jesus, 
Please take over my life. And please be my God. I turn from my sin and myself to you, Jesus. And I ask that you take over my life. I ask that you forgive my sin. And I ask that you be God over me. And all of my future. Make my life a testimony to your grace, Jesus. A story of your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If that's you and you... You prayed with me just now to follow Jesus, to become a Christian for the very first time. Man, I'd love to know that. I really would. I would love, love, love to know that. You can tell me on a communication card or a digital communication card. You can, you can find me after service. You can tell someone who came with you and have them tell me. You, you, can, you can email me even. I, I'm, I'm very, like, I actually email people back. I'm a little slow, I'll be honest. But I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at HarvestChurchEugene.com. I'd love to hear that you've become a Christian. Some of you have been Christians for a long time, many of you, right? And yet, you want the reminder, the refreshing of this commitment today that you belong to the Ancient of Days, to the Son of Man, and to their kingdom. If that's you, would you pray along with me like this? Dear Jesus, I thank you that you are holy, eternal, to be worshiped, that you are fair and merciful and sovereign. And Jesus, I pray that you would defeat evil in your time. Lord, we pray again for what happens, what is happening in our world, that you would be magnified. that your way of servanthood and sacrifice would bring great comfort to those suffering in the Ukraine today. May your way of sacrifice and servanthood be my way of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our, our team's going to come back up. and I'm going to take just a moment. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we call communion. I want to make sure we all understand what's going on. Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He was buried in a borrowed grave, and he rose again from the dead. The Bible says that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so for thousands of years, Christians have taken a cracker or a wafer or a bread or a, a something to represent the body of Jesus broken for us. And this is a two-layered system, these little cups. You peel that top layer off and you get this wafer. And I can't tell you how many of you through these season, the season of COVID have told told me, I can't wait till we go back to those other crackers because these little styrofoam things don't taste very good. They don't. I'll admit that. 
But I'm imagining that dying on the cross for my sins didn't taste very good for Jesus, right? Right? So he was broken. Jesus, we thank you for your body broken for us. And as Christian people, we eat this in remembrance of you. May your way of life be our way of life. In Jesus' name. Our Bible tells us in the same way. After supper, he took the cup. I don't know that any of you would ever do this, but I would encourage you, don't put a cup like this in your pocket or in your Bible. Because I put it in my Bible to walk up here on stage, and I now have the blood of Jesus spilled out in the book of Daniel in my Bible. Actually, that's not a bad thing, is it? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And you pray with me again. Jesus, we thank you not only for your body broken for us, but for your blood spilled for us. And we recognize that this represents you. And so, Jesus, we thank you that we are forgiven. We thank you that we have your mercy. And we thank you that you make us like you, Jesus. Again, we pray that your way of life would be our way of life. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Bible is good. God is good. The world, not so much. I want to challenge you to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters from the Ukraine and from Russia, those here in America and those around